This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 11th episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and I have to say I am particularly excited, but simultaneously, like, super nervous about my guest co-host this week. Like, listen, I pretend to be this, like, really intense investigator, but really, I pale in comparison to my guest co-host this week. It is Michelle Heron. Hello, Michelle. How are you doing? Hi, Liam. I am good. How are you? Oh, I am so good. It is so great to see you. So Michelle and I first met when we were both reporters here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where she tackled like these really intense stories every single day. The biggest stories always, not to like blow your head up too much, Michelle, <laughs> but you know it's true. We're talking documents galore, do- lawsuits, and crime, of course, which is what brings us here today. So you are definitely in for a treat because Michelle definitely knows her stuff and we have the perfect case to dive deep into this week. Right, Michelle? We have been texting about this for weeks and I'm so happy that it's finally here. Oh, I'm, I couldn't be happier because we like, it's, it's it's such an intense case. And so we, I, I'm like giddy, like just like just thinking about talking about this with you and hearing what you have to say about it. But before before we bonded over that, Michelle, I don't know if you remember this, but like literally the first thing that you ever messaged me about was wine. <laughs> yes. And so <laughs> we bonded over our love for wine. So let's get there first. So this week we are drinking Hans Cabernet Sauvignon. It's from Monterey Con- County, California, and it offers aromas of dark cherry and currants with flavors of blackberry and red fruit. The vineyard says it pairs best with a juicy burger ribs or spicy meatballs. Like, okay, like pop off a little bit on your bad self <laughs> with the spicy meatballs. I like never thought thought of like wine is pairing well with spicy meatballs but like okay sure let's do it <laughs> i've gotten actually some really good recipes of meatballs out of like Ooh. those food subscription boxes like hello fresh oh, yeah. like mm-hmm. and I, it, yeah exactly like you like i wouldn't have thought that they would be good but they totally are i guess it is like what is a meatball except for a burger in ball form so like yeah. sure like okay <laughs> like i guess that kind of makes sense i get i don't know it's just like is like that's not like my immediate pairing but i'm like really in- interested to see like, okay, could I, like, see myself eating a spicy meatball with this wine? We're about to find out. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay, let's, well, let's, speaking of that, let's find out for sure. I love a good red wine. Like, I love the color mm-hmm. and... I don't know. It's just like sultry and just fun to drink. It reminds me of a very relaxing night. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I'm all about that too. So cheers to you, Michelle. Great to have you on. Ooh, that is good. That is good. Lots of bold flavors in there for sure. I definitely, the red fruit flavors, I definitely taste for sure. It's smooth too. It is very smooth. It is very, very smooth. It's a very smooth red. And I also, 
again, like trying to imagine myself, okay, like meatballs, 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 what I eat meatballs with this. I feel like I probably could see myself. You know what? I think the only answer to this is I have to go buy some spicy meatballs and drink this, this <laughs> red wine. So I think we need to pause right here and go get some meatballs and really test this theory out. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, I, you know, really wish I could do that. But like, Michelle, I just have to cut to the chase here because I have to get right to the story. Yes, there's so much to talk about. So much to talk about. And it has been really keeping me up at night. And it is developing quite literally as we speak. Just in the last few weeks alone, there have been so many developments in this investigation. It's been like positively dizzying. And I know you feel the same way, Michelle, because like we said, we've been texting about it nonstop. And it ties back to a case that I know you all know every single detail of, the Murdoch family double murder. I wanted to do an episode about the Murdoch so badly, but there was so much to talk about, right? And you really can't talk about one without talking about the others. How could I cover the murder of Maggie and Paul, the boat crash, the financial crimes, the opioid addiction, and Gloria Satterfield all in one episode? I just simply couldn't, right? But I decided that I could use this podcast for what I intended it to be, bringing to light cases that have fallen by the wayside for far too long. But now, hopefully we are another step closer to finally figuring out, once and for all, who killed Stephen Smith, the first Murdoch mystery. We're going to begin this story deep in South Carolina's low country, Hampton County, population 18,000. It sits right on the Georgia border between Savannah and Columbia, but there's no mistaking that this is a coastal community, just a county over from the beautiful shore communities of Hilton Head Island and Beaufort, South Carolina. A man is swerving through the dark secluded streets on July 8th, 2015, on his way to work around four in the morning. He's the only one on the road, right? Like, the only thing that he has to worry about is any obstacles that might pop pop out into the street. And I mean, we're talking July in the most dense areas of the low country. He's worried about all sorts of animals that tend to dart out of the woods and in front of his pickup truck. But what he wasn't worried about was what he actually encountered that night. Suddenly, as he jets down Sandy Run Road, he sees a man lying in the middle of the road, completely lifeless. Now, he slows down enough to make sure he doesn't run over the man, but from what he can see, he thinks that the man was shot in the back of the head. So he's fearing for his own safety and he keeps driving and calls 911. Uh, I know it's Crockerville Road. Um, you just know it's Crockerville Road? Yeah. Um, hold on just a second. And which way are you headed? Okay, uh, the back way to go to, uh, where you going to go to Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, you're on that road just before you get into Crockerville? So in Crockerville, make that right. Okay. Crockerville, take that right. Wait, take a, take a left. Well, you call it 601. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. If, yeah. I'm, if I'm going toward Bamberg, I'm going to take a left on that road? Yeah, right. You're going to, uh, I'm going to get a road called 14. You can go to Sandy Run, but... But you're not on Sandy Run Road? Yeah, I think it is. It, 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 uh, it says you can go to Sandy Run, go straight on out. Okay. Uh-huh. 
And is it in the road or on the side of the road? It is in the road. So in the road? Yeah. Uh-uh. All right. So what's your name and call that number? Uh, my name is Ryan Caper. Okay. All right, Mr. Caper. Can I get a phone number for you? Uh, I don't know if I'm off the cell phone, but you can call the number back. I don't okay. know if I'm going to work. Okay, but this is a good number to reach you back at? Yeah. Okay, all right. We'll get an officer headed out that way to see what's going on. Okay, so this is the the road, right? Uh, I ain't moving or nothing like that, but uh, somebody going to hit him. It's dark. Uh-huh. Somebody going to hit him. All right, we'll get an officer headed out that way. Okay. All right, sir. Okay, so, Michelle, I know that's really hard to hear because of the quality of this call, but what did you make of what you could understand? So, I was a little bit surprised that the person calling 911 wasn't more concerned or, yeah, yeah, alarmed. Um, But a lot of the 911 call is discussing where this body was. And and, um, once they finally figure out what road the man was on, which was Sandy Run Road. Um, he describes that the the person is in the road and that he didn't move them and that if someone doesn't get out there soon, another motorist will, you know, hit the person. Um, but really, that's all the information that I could get out of it. I mean, it really didn't talk about what it looked like happened or if the person was still breathing or anything like that. Just not a lot of information there. Yeah, I totally agree. And typically, you know, the 911 calls that we play on this podcast are typically, you know, much more, you know, like I think back to like the Mariah Woods case, right? Where, you know, um, where Earl is like frantic, you know, just absolutely out of breath, like, you know, because he's been running around. This is obviously a very different 911 call. This man does has zero connection to the to the to the person in the street absolutely i think it gets to not everything is as it seems Mm, absolutely yeah so police show up to this scene to try and find this lifeless man in the middle of nowhere south carolina and they eventually do come across him just as the driver had described sprawled out dead in the middle of the road and frankly police are lucky he wasn't run over again only to suffer more injuries because they injuries he's already had are brutal. He had deep gashes to his head, severe head trauma, and he also had abrasions and contusions on his arm and some road rash, you know, that you typically see from a car accident, but really that road rash is pretty minor. The man also had a hole above his right eye that police initially thought may have been an exit wound from some kind of projectile, but they're just simply not sure if it was like a gunshot, like a bullet, or what exactly exactly that projectile may have been. So seeing all of this, responding officers' clear initial instinct about this case is that it was likely a shooting or something like even the coroner, when he arrives on scene, he says that it looks like the man had been shot in the back of the head. They search this man's pockets and find his cell phone and car keys still in his cargo shorts, and three miles away, they find the man's car. It's a 2007 yellow Chevy Aveeno. The car had its gas tank open and the cap was off and dangling off the side of the car. The car was locked, but the keys found in the man's body were able to unlock it, and that's how they were able to determine that it was his. They couldn't get the car to start, and that's when they find a wallet inside of the car with an ID inside, and that's how they're able to identify him as 19-year-old Stephen Smith. I wonder if they ever 
looked in the car's um, like gas tank to see if it really was out of gas or if mm. there was like maybe a different type of mechanical problem. That's a really good question that I never really thought of because I think, you know, coming up to a gas tank that's open and with its, with its dangling off the side, you know, your initial thought right is obviously um you know empty is empty gas tank right so i think that is interesting i wonder and i wonder how they would do that i would imagine there's some way yeah but also if you think about it if you're trying to stage a scene to make Mm. it look like a car ran out of gas you're gonna have the the little gas door open with the cap hanging off so it makes you wonder and it does make you wonder and what else makes me wonder um to Michelle, and we're going to get, you know, a little bit into this a little bit later on. But, you know, um, later on, this uh, Stephen's sister, Stephanie, talks about how Stephen actually had um, uh, car problems the day before, um, where his car wouldn't start. The, um, but it, where, and then St- Stephanie even said um, that it, that because I guess she's more uh, mechanically inclined, I suppose. So she was looking at the car, um, and she said that it looked like someone had disconnected his battery. And so she, she reconnected it. Um, and that's how she, they were able to get the car to start again. Ooh, so yeah. something fishy is going on. And I think also, you know, mentioning some of his injuries, if you're, you've ever been familiar with, you know, injuries that come from uh, some sort of being hit by a vehicle, a person being hit by a vehicle, what he has is definitely minor compared to, mm. Um, what can really happen when a, if a person is hit by a car. Yeah. And we're going to dive deep into that in just a second. So save all of that, you know, all of those questions that you have for just like five minutes down the road. How about that? So (laughs) now officers have to make a call. They never want to make no officer ever wants to make. They have to find Stephen's family members to tell them what had happened to him. And they are able to find Sandy Smith, Stephen's mother, who tells officers that she had been looking for him that morning when Stephen's twin sister, who Stephen lived with, said he never came home the night before. His family describes Stephen as flamboyant. I mean, open and proud. He was an openly gay teenager, which could not have been easy in this part of the country, right? But he never let that slow him down. He had this long, fluid, blonde hair, pale, clear skin, and piercing blue eyes. Really exactly what you would picture of someone who grew up just an hour from Charleston and the beautiful beaches of South Carolina. This is when Sandy and Stephanie, Stephen's twin, tell officers that he had been acting a little strange the last few weeks, like just not himself. He had been skipping classes, he had been taking at the local community college where he had been studying to become a nurse. But on top of that, his sister tells police that he had been coming across pretty secretive recently. Recently, keeping things to himself more. And she says he is a normally a pretty open person, right? Especially with his family. She said that he had been coming home really late the last two weeks, but he never told her where he had been going. And she let him have his privacy, right? Like she never really probes, never really asked about it. At this point, Stephen's sudden death just wasn't making a whole lot of sense to Sandy. And so heartbroken, devastated, and really in ultimate mom mode here, she starts walking the three-mile stretch between where Stephen's car was found and where his body was found over and over and over again, looking for any sort of clue about what may have happened to her sweet boy. But she found nothing that brought her any closer to any sort of answer. And that mission to find closure for herself and for her family and for Stephen was about to stall 
big time because the people investigating Stephen's death were about to throw the family a major curveball. Before we get there, we should probably give some background on how this whole investigation has worked from a police jurisdiction perspective. When the initial call comes in about Stephen's body, the Hampton County Sheriff's Office responds. But pretty much right away, from what they can tell about this case, this was something that needed to be elevated. So they call in the State Law Enforcement Division, or SLED. It's basically the South Carolina version of the State Bureau of Investigation from pretty much any other state that you're listening to. They handle the crime scene right off the bat, and that's because they are the ones specially trained in homicide investigations, and that's how they are treating this crime scene as a homicide. So the fact that right off the bat it was treated like a homicide, I mean, that there can be pros to that because they're looking at clues um, differently. They're preserving evidence differently, you know, so that can be really good because it's happening on the forefront, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. all those things are being documented and you have it there so that later on when people need to come back to it, it's there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, spoiler alert, Michelle, and as you know, like that's about to change in a hot second. Um, so let's get there too, right? So they send Stephen's body to the local hospital for a pathology report and they look over the body like they normally would, but they make an interesting determination at the end of this investigation. This particular pathologist does not think that the wounds to the front and back of Stephen's head were from a gunshot wound. Instead, the pathologist makes the determination that Stephen was likely the victim of a hit and run, saying that his injuries were consistent with a car collision, and she lists a manner of death as undetermined. Hmm. And it's it's kind of weird because she listed as undetermined, but hit and run and someone not staying on the scene. Yeah. Like that that's still that's a crime. I mean, that's nothing natural. That, that's nothing like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's what got me there, too. It was like, okay, so yes, even if it's even if it's a hit and run, I'm not buying that. But like, let's say it's a hit and run, right? So like, that is still like, you still need to be looking for someone who, who hit a person in the middle of the street and then didn't stop and just continued on. Like, you know, so it's like, what why does that change literally anything about this investigation? It doesn't really, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me at all. No, it doesn't make sense. And and definitely makes you want to know if there's more of an underlying underlying reason as to why. Yeah. So the pathologist also finds some very small metallic paint chips on Stephen's clothes, possibly from a car, but they were simply too small to determine where they had come from. But that is clearly not the assumption, this, you know, bizarre hit and run that police are going off of at this point. It doesn't initially strike them as some kind of vehicle collision, not only because of his injuries, right? Like you were talking about, Michelle, but also because of some evidence from the scene that any cop who has ever worked a deadly car collision like this would know to look for. There are absolutely no vehicle fragments around the scene, like absolutely none. And not only that, but this man's shoes are still on his feet, but loosely tied, a telltale sign that this man was 0% absolutely not hit by a car. This was one of the things that we've been talking about. Anytime mm. I've ever covered someone being hit by a car and as tragic as it is, they are always knocked out of their shoes. And mm. 
police who have investigated scenes like this, they'll tell you the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. And if you've followed this case and there are pictures of his shoes tied on his feet and Mm -hmm. they are so loose, it's not even funny. Like you could walk out of those shoes. So how in the world can they still be on his feet if he was allegedly hit by a car? It doesn't make sense. Well, Michelle, we were talking about this like all this week. And I promised you, I mean, this promise to you, I said I would find out once and for all why someone's shoes came off when they get hit by a car. And even and even like the most secured shoes, like almost all always come off in serious car collisions like this. And like, I got the answers for you. So are you ready for this, Michelle? I'm so ready. Tell me all about it. Okay, so I texted a few of my cop friends asking about this. And what they told me is that it's like, pretty basic physics like i almost failed physics though like (laughs) multiple times so that was like not going to roll for me at all so i ask for so much more so basically when the way they described it to me is when a person is hit by a car traveling at a speed where the collision is either serious or deadly you become nothing more than like a spinning projectile so think of like you know one of those like fidget spinners or you know think about it like that and so anything on your person that's not secured will act as a separate object object. It just so happens that shoes are pretty much the most loosely secured objects on your body most of the time, typically. And on top of that, they're at the end of your body. So when you get hit by a car and you spin like that, they're going to gain the most amount of momentum and speed, hence why they just fly off your body almost 100% of the time. You know, when you put it that way, like, it does make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, even more so, it, it like, Stephen wasn't hit by a car. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's like, so, okay, so, like, like, when you think about, like, getting hit by a car, like, you know, how does, like, the only severe injury, like, come to the back of the head? Like, it feels like, you know, even if you're, even if you're hurt from behind, like, you would think that there would be, like, a lot of momentum, like, or, excuse me, a lot of injuries, like, to the, to, like, your lower back, to your legs, like, like, if, you know, because that's where you would have to be. So that that doesn't sit well with me at all. And like, I think that that is like the biggest, like the shoes are like the biggest piece of evidence that like, like, because how else would this have happened, I suppose? Mm -hmm. And I think also, you know, if you live in the South or if you've been in the South, especially on some of these like backcountry roads, like Mm. nine times out of 10, people don't drive the speed limit or under Mm. the speed limit. They're usually like driving faster because nine times out of 10, they know those roads. They, you know, feel comfortable driving those roads. Yeah, Mm. exactly. So I think you also have to kind of take an educated guess that whoever was driving, if they were like, they would have been driving at a higher higher rate of speed mm, and right. which also points to, to you know the assumption that he would have had more injuries and like and then what happens if you know the person determining the cause of death it doesn't match up with like what investigators are seeing i mean that has to be mm. such a tough spot to be in yeah. You know, because well, you're seeing yeah. two different sets of evidence, I guess. Yeah, and it's, it causes some tension um, in that you're about to see. So let's go there, too. So because of this pathologist determination, SLED actually ends up backing off the case. They said Stephen likely had some car problems, like we knew that he was known to be having. And because of how late it was, he just started walking home. And he was actually found along the road he would have taken to get back to his house. So makes sense that and so that may have been where he was hit by a car 
the driver of which never stopped and just simply kept driving. And like, again, let's be clear about this. That is a 100% crime in and of itself, even if that is what we're talking about here. So because Stephen's death is now officially considered as part of a car collision, Celed is turning it over to the state highway patrol since they're the experts in that kind of investigation. But they're not homicide detectives. And again, we're talking about a dead body here. So that is a very clear distinction here. So I think this is a really big move to classify Stephen's death as a vehicular manslaughter, a tragic accident, and not necessarily an intentional homicide. Yeah. And it, that, it goes back to, you know, how much work is going to be done in, in mm. the investigation and the types of things that they're looking for. So if you're trying to find out the cause of a car crash, you're going to look at things that are called yaw marks. You're going to look for skid marks. You know, you're going to look for things like that. You're not really going to be looking for someone that may have witnessed this. Mm. You know what I mean? So you've got investigators that are trained to look for different things. Yeah. And very intentionally too. And by the way, like the, like none of those things that you just mentioned were present here. So it's like, that's a very important, like there were no skid marks, you know, point being, like I said, the, these troopers are not trained homicide detectives. And again, we have a dead body on our hands, but they survey the scene, look over notes and look at the injuries and see what the rest of us see that this was more than likely a very intentional homicide. They make these determinations not an accident, and they should not be the ones handling this case. For starters, Stephen's injuries are simply not consistent with a fatal car collision. He has no broken bones, just a minorly dislocated shoulder, and has really minor road rash, like, you know, what happens when you're pushed across a um, pavement roadway. I mean, how can a car traveling fast enough to kill somebody not even break a bone for the love of God? On top of that, Stephen's road rash is minor, and his shoes are still on his feet. And it just wasn't sitting well with them. So they bring their concerns to the higher ups with the highway patrol, who shut them down pretty much right away, saying this is the determination, and it's their job to investigate. That's it. They even go to the Hampton County Sheriff's Office. And the lead investigator on the case at this point tells WCIV, the ABC affiliate in Charleston, that the sheriff physically won't even take the files that he has to make his point into his hands. So finally, one trooper decides to go straight to the pathologist herself to try and ask about this ruling and to express some of his concerns. Now, Michelle, I'm hoping that you're able to read what the trooper writes in this report about his interactions for us. Yeah, definitely. The report says, I went down to MUSC on this date to meet with Dr. Erin Presnell. She is the pathologist that performed the autopsy on the victim in this case. The reason I went and spoke with her was due to a preliminary report where she stated that the victim was possibly struck by a motor vehicle mirror, which was the cause of death. Sergeant Moore had already had, from my understanding, a heated conversation with her about this issue. The MAIT team has always had a good working relationship with MUSC, so I wanted to see if I could go down there and get some sort of clarification. As soon as Dr. Presnell came into the room, she began in a negative tone stating that I did not have a meeting scheduled and that she was very busy. She stated that she could not even begin speaking with me about this case without the coroner's consent. I advised her that I had spoken with Coroner Washington the day before, and she basically called me a liar and said she would call him right then. 
When I asked if she wanted me to call from my cell phone, she backed off. I asked her why she stated that in the report, and her answer was, quote, because he was found in the road, unquote. She had no evidence other than that for the statement being put in the report. She asked, why did we not think it was a vehicle strike? And I explained to her that we had no evidence of this individual being struck by a vehicle. I asked her if someone with a baseball bat could do that, and she stated, quote, no. When I probed further, asking what about someone in a moving car with a bat, she stated, quote, well, I guess it's possible. But then when we asked if we found a bat as evidence, I could see that this conversation was not going to yield any positive results. As I was leaving, she stated that the report was preliminary and it was my job to figure out what struck him, not hers. So needless to say, that was not a good meeting. No. Yeah. And, you know, to be fair, I think, you know, just from her perspective, I suppose, you know, I would imagine there, you know, at this point, you know, maybe we are talking about probably multiple missed calls, you know, multiple different instances where, you know, he's badgering, you know, what happened with this? What happened with this? You know, I'm, I'm assuming it's very heated at this point. It's, I, I think it's about a month, I believe, um, after the death. Um, so yeah, but, you know, I think, you know, to, to the trooper's point, right? I mean, like, like the idea of, you know, some sort of vehicle collision happening here and there's no debris over in the road, like, you know, at all, like from this car and like, there's no trace that there was, you know, like you think about like, even if it's a side view mirror, sure. Like, like there are pe- like, you know, if it's fat, if it's, you know, hitting them hard enough to, you know, to kill them, there's going to be something in the middle of the road unless they went back and like cleaned it up, but like they couldn't have gotten absolutely everything. So mm. I think... I think just all the agencies involved, there's just not really any evidence for any of them to go off of, mm. you know, any sort of theory. And I think that just brings a lot of frustration and they probably were all getting flustered and some of those frustrations were bubbling over, you know? Yeah. Oh, certainly. And, you know, these, these, you know, doing this kind of work cannot be easy, right? I mean, I, you know, do not, you know, discredit that in one, like one single second, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, a lot of, you know, high emotions constantly, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so it, it can't, it can't be, it can't be an easy thing. But at the same time, you know, I think that you have to kind of take everything into consideration. And she's not necessarily wrong in saying, you know, that's my, that's your job to figure out what hit him, not mine. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that, that's, that's the truth. And we've said this on this very podcast before, you know, talking about, you know, who, like who's, you know, who's the appropriate source to kind of be talking about these kinds of things. Yeah. Right. And think about the type of position that that possibly oh, could yeah. have put her in, you know, like you're basically your hands are tied. So what do you do? What do you do? Yeah. The, yeah, that's a, such a good point. And, you know, Stephen's family, though, is convinced that Stephen was murdered. But for starters, they said that Stephen would never have been walking in the middle of the road, especially that late at night. He was a really skittish person, but also really aware of his surroundings at all times. So him walking in the middle of the road just doesn't sound like Stephen. On top of that, they said... If Stephen was really having car problems, why would he have left his wallet in his car? Plus, he would have called his sister for help. I mean, they're really close, and she didn't live that far away from where he died. And remember, Stephen still had his cell phone on him when police arrived. I think, and I 
Agree. I mean, if I was in a situation like this, I would sit in my car and I would call a friend or a family member. You know, I would call someone to come to me. And Mm -hmm. I'd like to think, like, Liam, you would do the same thing. I don't, I just don't see you walking down a road in the middle of the night. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, definitely not me for sure. And like, definitely like, listen, like I, like I'm not dying at like 24, at 25, you know what I mean? And so I'm not putting myself in that kind of position. And so, but I do think, you know, and I tried to put, at this point, I tried to put myself in Steven's shoes. Right. And I think, you know, I, I see a lot of myself in Steven at that age, um, only because I see, you know, this maybe a little confused teenager, you know, still just trying to like come into his own shoes kind of thing. And like they said, like Stephanie and, and Sandy themselves said that he had had been keeping a lot of secrets. And so kind of where my mind goes is, okay, well, what was he doing out that late at night? Where was he going? Where was he coming from? And maybe he didn't want them to know about it. You know what I mean? And so like, obviously, you know, you have car problems, maybe if that's really, if that's, if that's the theory that we want to go with here and, you know, you don't want to call sister and say, Hey, you know, cause then you have to explain yourself mm-hmm. you have to explain. This is why I was out at, you know, whatever time in the morning um, on a, I think it was a, it was a Tuesday night kind of thing. And so, you know, I think that he, you know, I don't know. I, I guess I, I, I see, I see a world, right. My point being um, that where, where he doesn't necessarily, you know, where he just wants to kind of, you know, handle that later, right. You know, talk, you know, handle it himself, you know, and, you know, so that way people don't probe too much into what's go what's really going on with Stephen. What is he really doing? I think also like you, you really did bring up a point that I, I do like agree with like being 19, like there's mm-hmm. this sense of like, I can figure it out. Like I'll handle it. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Then you figure it out, handle it and get going and you forget about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. so maybe there is also just a little bit of that of, you know, we'll get this figured out. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like, yeah. And I think you bring up a good point about like the age that he's in. Certainly, you know, any teenager at that point is like, like has this kind of renewed sense of independence, right? I mean, I think of myself at that age and I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm free, like my first year of college, like I can do whatever, like, you know, I can just, you know, I I can, I can figure it out. And, you know, I think that from what I've kind of gathered from, from, you know, from reading about what Sandy and Stephanie have to say about Steven, you know, he seems like that kind of independent person, right? And so I guess I don't, I guess I just don't necessarily discount the fact that he, you know, could have run into these problems and just didn't want anyone to know about it right away. So I don't know. I I guess I I guess I see the point. I see the point. I I could I can see myself going that way. But it still doesn't necessarily explain everything else, right? The physical evidence. And it does. It it kind of does make you wonder: Would that night have turned out completely different if he mm. had just picked up mm. the phone and called his sister? Yeah. So true. And I also think too, you know, regardless of, of all that, you know, regardless, you know, if, if, you know, he really wanted to just kind of like, you know, put it, you know, deal with it himself, he would have brought his wallet. Right. I mean, like, yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. hundred percent of all the things, if you're going to, if you're going to grab your keys, if you're going to grab your phone, why Mm -hmm. wouldn't you grab your wallet? Like the only time you're not going to grab your wallet is if you're just out of your car for like a second, like you have an intention to go right back in there because mm. you would grab your wallet if you weren't yeah 
Right, exactly. So I think I think the the fact that the wallet's still in the car absolutely 100% proves to me that I don't think that he was walking just on his own. Um, but, you know, I, I guess so I, I take that and kind of, you know, grain that with everything I just said about, you know, him wanting to be independent and all that stuff. But, you know, even though the official determination of Stephen's death was an unintentional car accident, at least officially, this doesn't necessarily stop the Highway Patrol from trying to solve this case and maybe even prove their point along their way. So they start asking around, and this is when some really interesting names start popping up. All right, Michelle, how is your Han treating you? I really like it. Like I said, it's a really smooth wine, so it's really easy to drink. Um, And sometimes with reds, after like a glass or two, I won't be able to drink anymore. But it's that's not the case with this one. I am really surprised that I like it as much as I do. Um, Mm. Typically, I'm a I'm a white wine girl, but I could totally drink this on just a regular night okay i'm not gonna lie i didn't know that about you that you prefer white over red i really i really truly thought that you were a red gal too so i'm like a little like you think you know a girl until obviously you find out that they like their what their wine preferences are okay well but i'm also never going to turn down a glass of wine (laughs) and that's why we love michelle (laughs) (laughs) you know try anything but no i really do like this like this would be a good wine if you were going to over to a friend's house and you were looking for something to bring like this is definitely one that you could bring and everybody i think would enjoy yeah it's you know it brings a lot of the flavor um because when i think of of cabernets i think of like really bold fruity flavors and this is like that to a t um and so i'm really enjoying it from that perspective too um but i also like could really see like you know because i went the totally opposite perspective from you of like you know going over to friend's house i could really see like you know just like this gives me like chill night in vibes you know yes you know with like whatever your favorite true crime documentary is like that's that's the vibe like or like your true favorite true crime podcast too Um, (laughs) whatever whatever your vibe is i could really see that in this wine too Mm -hmm. that's that's where i'm going and also like because we both bond over wine like i'm so you mentioned like i can't believe i'm not halfway through this bottle yet same (laughs) but it's because we've been talking so much (laughs) so much yeah yeah so true (laughs) listen like that's 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 what you know michelle and i do we just like chit chat chit chat but like you know so anyways but the i will agree i do think i usually do get like halfway through my bottle by this point and i'm like not even a quarter way through so like y'all don't prosecute me like we have a lot to talk about here so (laughs) we do i can't believe it they're like we're barely scratching the surface of this case wait we have not even left sandy run road at this point and we have so much more to talk about including oh my gosh like the craziest interview i've ever heard with um with a potential suspect so are you ready for this michelle i'm so ready okay so stephanie tells investigators that steven had recently started using dating apps and posting dating ads on craigslist under a different name and she wasn't a big fan of this like any sister 
you know, would be. She said she had told him that he was going to mess around with the wrong person one day. And so investigators take this and run with it at this point, going off of the assumption that Stephen did indeed mess around with the wrong person that night. They end up chasing down a couple of people who Stephen had met online. One guy who tells them that he and Stephen had just had what he called a one night stand, but he hadn't heard from Stephen or seen Stephen in months after that. And then another man comes into play here. His name was Mark Bickhart. He was 47 years old and claimed to investigators to be Stephen's boyfriend. Okay, so this random 47-year-old boyfriend. Um, I have a lot of questions. Like, oh, yeah. I kind of want to know, like, why does he think that they're in a relationship like that? I mean, it, mm. it's possible, but... Uh, I don't know. Yeah, and, like, we're gonna get to this in a second, but, like, the fact that, like, nobody really else acknowledges his existence definitely gives me the side eye in a major way, because I think you and I can, and I've talked about this, like, pretty much every single episode of this podcast, like, you and I can agree that, like, whenever we have these kinds of high-profile cases, like, the big people from the woodworks will come out and, like, try to be a part of it, right? I mean, this is, like, like just, like, true crime 101. And so, it, it like, it definitely makes me wonder if, like, he's one of those people that, like, just wants to be really a part of this thing, like, heard about this, like, you know, attractive, young, you know, gay kid in the community and was just like, yeah, like, he was mine. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But, like, he does know a lot of, like, you know, um, of, you know, intimate details, I suppose. Not, like, that kind of intimate, but, like, intimate details about his life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it, it really, I could honestly, and I've heard, I've listened to this interview, like, so many times, like, I could go either way on whether or not this is actually, you know, legitimate or not. Um, and police have their own theory, which we're going to get to, too. Yeah. And maybe, like, maybe Mark was, like, way into Steven. And maybe mm. Steven was like, mm, I'm getting creeper vibes. We we don't know. Yeah. Well, so Stephanie tells investigators that when she did find out about Mark, that she told him that he was probably more of, like, a sugar daddy to Stephen. But Mark evidently wasn't really happy with the way that Stephanie characterized their relationship and actually claims that they had plans to get married. Investigators aren't able to substantiate Mark's claims, like, at all, and they question him about, you know, his potential involvement in Stephen's death. Mark says that he was texting and calling Stephen all night the night that he died and said he could hear cars whizzing by while he was still on the phone with him. Mark said that he asked Stephen if he was walking on the road and he said no and then all of a sudden the phone went dead and that was the last time that he had ever heard from or spoken to Stephen. Okay, they had plans to get married? Yeah, I call that BS. I wasn't, I, yeah, I don't need to know here anything more. I don't think that's true. Like, I'm sorry, bro, but, like, maybe you should, like, probably, you know, come to reality here a little bit here. Ugh. And I kind of, like, almost can exactly see where the sister was coming from. You Mm. know what I mean? Like, that sounds a little bit more in line than with what he's telling. I don't know. I mean, I think, I, I, I guess I could just see a world. And, like, also just, again, speaking from someone who's from the LGBT community, like, this is, like, a pretty common thing. This is a pretty common arrangement, like, that people have. So, like, no judgment, I guess? Yeah, no, there's absolutely no judgment. And, you know, people do all sorts of things, you know. But Mm. it's just interesting that he told police 
that they had plans to get married. Like, I, I don't yeah. know. Like, I just don't. If police were questioning me about the death of someone that I was close to, I don't know if I would be throwing that out there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I do think that, like, definitely probably raises some eyebrows. And it's also, like, so he's very close to his mom, very close to his sister, evidently. And it's like, okay, like, you know, he had plans to get married to this person, but, like, didn't even, like, tell. Exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, I'm not buying that. So... I don't know. I mean, I could see, like, maybe, like, a situation where it was, like, oh, yeah, like, oh, like, you want to marry me one day? And be like, oh, yeah, sure. Like, you know, like, I You just know. go along with it because yeah, you want to keep the peace. It. Yeah, right. You know, you want the, you want him to keep buying you dinner, like, keep paying for your books. Like, okay. Mark also tells investigators, though, some in- important details that investigators are able to follow up on about the day before that Stephen had died. Um, Stephen told Mark that he felt like he was being followed followed like how well steven tells mark that he went to a gas station the day before and there were two guys in a pickup truck who are harassing steven steven never gave mark a description of the truck but did say that they may have been two guys a white guy and a black guy hmm i mean i don't know what to think about this but i also feel like if you were trying to throw off investigators, mm. it just kind of fits perfectly. Like, yeah, and like to me at this point, like Mark's credibility is zero. You know what I mean? Like, absolutely. Like, I don't like as a witness from a witness perspective. Like, I don't trust him at all. Yeah, so, yeah. Like, it's yeah. weird. Well, so obviously that's not a whole lot to go off of at all. And Mark's story is kind of odd. So please ask him to take a lie detector test to substantiate everything that he is saying that would prove that he had nothing to do with Stephen's death. And Mark agrees to this polygraph. But WCIV reports that police eventually decide that his story adds up somehow. So they decide to back off of this polygraph. Test. I, I kind of feel like maybe police were just like, all right, we've 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 heard from Mark. We're gonna we're gonna keep trucking yeah. away. And it does feel like very red herring y for me. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, like he tells you all this stuff. But on the same on the same, you know, realm though, if we're going off of the assumption, right, that Steven was like was becoming very secretive, maybe he was hanging out with Mark, you know, because his and he wasn't telling his family about it because they knew that he wouldn't approve of it. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's fair. And like, you know, I, and I think there was even like um like Mark even said to investigators at one point in this in this interview um that Stephen was supposed to be coming over to his house that night um but then like at, like based off of the directions i suppose that that Stephen was evidently traveling because of the way that they found his car and because of the way they found him that he was actually traveling away from Mark's house um which is interesting but um so point being is like so I don't know. Like, I don't really know what's how much stake to put into this part of the interview, I suppose. You know what I mean? It's like it, it like it could make perfect sense, but it could ac- make absolutely no sense all at the same time. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the vibe that I'm getting to. And yeah. I would totally understand if like that's why police were like, OK, we're, mm. we're going to keep going. You know, like yeah. maybe if some other evidence pops up that goes back to Mark, then maybe they explore that a little mm. bit more. But, you know, kind of at the where they're at, like, okay, thanks, Mark. Like, we're going to keep going. Yeah, I totally I think what like what you're trying to say is like, like, you know, y- you could see like either dropping Mark because like no need to pursue it or dropping Mark because like this is just too crazy. No, even no need to even polygraph him because we know he's going to fail. Yeah. Fair. 
Yeah. yeah. So at the same time police are asking Mark questions, they start asking around to some of Stephen's friends and classmates about his habits, this supposed relationship, and any potential enemies that Stephen may have had. And they all say the same thing. Stephen was like this really nice guy. He had no enemies that they know of, and they had never heard of Mark before. And then, on August 7th, 2015, someone drops a really interesting name as part of this, you know, community rumor that was going around town. And Michelle, could you read what this former classmate of Stevens tells police that someone had asked them at one point? A boy named Brendan asked if Stephen and Buster Murdoch had ever had a type of relationship. Yeah, that's where this is like, what? Bomb drop. Now, okay, so let me just go here for a second. And Michelle, I see you're going for another glass of wine and I know you're going to need it. So let's just do that. So normally I don't mess with town rumors, right? I mean, listen, I love being involved in the town gossip, but you can't prosecute someone based on rumors. So I usually don't bring them up on this podcast or even, you know, in any other scenario at all. But this name, Buster Murdoch, pops up over and over and over again in this report, and police keep asking about it, trying to find the source of the rumor so they can tell for themselves if it's bogus or not. And it's super important to find out if this rumor is true. The rumor that Stephen and Buster Murdoch, who went to high school together, apparently, according to this rumor, were engaged in some sort of hookup relationship of sorts. But If you're listening to this, you probably know all about the Murdochs, right? But let's back up for the probably, like, two people who are listening right now who weren't totally invested in this story for, like, the two years that it was playing out when it was all unfolding. The Murdochs were, and yes, I mean were, an incredibly powerful family, more like a Hampton County, South Carolina dynasty. The Murdoch name went a far away for decades in the area. For years, they ran the 14th Judicial Circuit in the solicitor's office, which is the South Carolina name for a district attorney. The family passed down the title of Solicitor General for generation to generation for years. They had put thousands of people away and dozens of people to death. More recently, Randy Murdoch Buster's grandfather was Solicitor General, but he had gone into private practice as a personal injury attorney in the area. Alec Murdoch, Randy's son, and Buster's father eventually joined the law firm, too. Point being, the Murdoch family name is synonymous with Hampton County. Everyone knows the family and knows the legal power that they have held in the area for decades. Investigators can clearly sense this throughout their investigation, the hesitancy to be the person who talks about the person who talked about the person who first threw the legendary Murdoch name into this bizarre mystery. So this is a a really big deal um, Mm. because... If you've, I mean, you've moved around, you know, as a journalist covering different communities, I've done the same. And especially in these smaller towns, these names have more power. The, you know, the these legendary names in these communities, they're tied to so many different things. And there can be like repercussions if mm. you speak negatively or act negatively on a family like this. So I can totally see the hesitancy. And it also like 
kind of puts investigators in a weird spot too. Oh, totally weird spot. And also too, I mean, like from a different, from a totally different perspective, because I totally hear you from, you know, every community has this type of family, right? And so, um, you know, but this is like a totally different ball game and that like they are the ones investigating people, mm-hmm. right? Like they're the ones responsible for putting people away. So this is just like totally changes the, the game, right? I mean, because typically there's like the family who, the name who, you know, it is the mayor and also you know the you know sits on the town council like that like it's usually all these like super you know political positions but then you know you throw in the fact that that this family can all of a sudden like that you know put you in jail for good you know and they have all these ties you know deep 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 ties to judges to to you know to your defense attorney potentially you know all like they know all these people in this community that is a total game changer in like ways i can't even begin to characterize yeah loyalty definitely runs deep mm. because you know if if you're someone that needs something whether it be politically whether it be for your business whether it be, you know, regarding government, maybe you need some zoning changes, something like that. Like, loyalty definitely does run deep. And Mm. I can... And money runs deep too, right? Absolutely. You know, Mm. someone with a lot more means can make things happen compared to someone who doesn't have a lot of means and might know the truth, but doesn't have the money to investigate it and prove it wrong or bring the truth to light. Yeah, well, so just to be clear, there is absolutely no evidence that is laid out in the investigative file to even suggest that Buster may or even may not have had something to do with Stephen Smith's death. And he was never named a suspect and was never charged with absolutely anything. But that was not the last time that the Murdoch name popped up in into this mix either. In December, five months after Stephen's death, someone calls in a tip to the highway patrol. They said that their stepson had told him he knew who killed Stephen and even names the guy directly to these officers. But of course, we are not going to name the name here. Investigators try and track him down to get his account, but they can't get a hold of him at all. But What makes this extra interesting is the stepfather tells investigators that the reason he called this in is because Randy Murdoch, the former solicitor general, told him to. So I think this goes right back to what we were saying about Um, where the power lies, where the loyalty lies. Yeah. Well, and it just seems so. I, I, I'm so curious about what the how this stepfather connects to the Murdochs. You know what I mean? Are they like friends? Like what's going on? And it's like I have a lot of questions mm-hmm. here. And investigators bring this information back to the family and say, "This is the tip we got. Do these names sound familiar?" And you know, none of them do, except for one name. That's Randy Murdoch, of course. But not only because of his stature in the community, but because Randy happened to be the second person to call Stephen's father when Stephen died wanting to take their case on pro bono, totally free of charge. That's insane. Insane. It's almost like, well, if you were trying to cover up something or trying to shift the focus, you know, why not call him up and say, hey, I'll represent you guys for free, you know, because you're taking the focus off of your family. You're also, you also have an in on whatever, um, mm-hmm. what the investigation's going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're you're kind of able to, 
you're able to manipulate almost. Yeah. Well, and look, like, like I know a lot of lawyers. I know you know a lot of lawyers. Like, no lawyer I've ever met is just like, yeah, whoa, that's a crazy case. Like, let me just call him up and just like offer to do it for free. Unless, you know, uh, you know, and I say this, I say a big unless because of kind of, again, you know, and, uh, you know, what we know about the case has unfolded in the last couple of days, you know, um, you know, unless there's some, you know, massive injustice happening that like mm-hmm. you just want to be a part of it just because you want to, you know, you know, expose this situation. At this point, we're not talking about that. We're talking about like some bizarre, you know, uh, you know, from, from what they know about the case, you know, a weird hit and run. Like we're not mm-hmm. talking about like, like, you know, 10 years down the line where this case still isn't solved. Okay. Let me take it on. Yeah. It's like, why would I need a lawyer right now? You know, like my, so I just true. found out that my son died. Like why, why do I need a lawyer right now? And, and yeah. And also too, I think like, so Randy Murdoch was the second person to call the family. The the first person, by the way, was the coroner who, you know, is at this point being told by the pathologist that this is a, you know, a hit and run situation, not a murder. And so it's like, okay, well, like who, like who, Randy, like who did you call right before? Yeah. You know, like how did you like, find out? Why, yeah. why are you involved? You know? So yeah. again, makes you raise an eyebrow. Like both my eyebrows are raised. What, eyebrows what's going raised. on here? Yeah. So despite this bizarre new connection, there is no evidence linking anyone to Stephen's death. And at this point, his death is still considered a hit and run, a total accident. But that all changes years down the line. And I know you all know where we're going next. But, you know, maybe let's pause here for some dramatic effect. June 2021, a call comes into the Hampton County Sheriff's Office. On the other end, a seemingly panicked and distressed Alec Murdoch, who just returned home to find his wife and son brutally murdered on his property at Moselle, South Carolina. Let's cut to the chase here, Michelle. Just a few months later, police arrest and charge Alec with their vicious and predatory murders. And that's like a totally different podcast here, but... The reason we're bringing this up here is because just weeks, and I mean weeks, after the double homicide, SLED announces that they are reopening Stephen Smith's case. Quote, based upon information gathered during the course of the double murder investigation. So I've really been trying to figure out what they could have found during that investigation because... The Moselle property, that was where they went to hunt. Mm -hmm. So I think, like, keeping that in mind, you know, was it text messages maybe that they found or something on their phones? Um, Or was it then where more people decided to come forward and start talking and sharing information that they knew? I don't know. But, like, I am really interested in, like, what what was it like it was enough evidence to get them to reopen the case yeah right and like they don't do that lightly by any means and so like i'm so glad you brought that up because i have like so many thoughts about like what may have been involved in this and so my i okay so i have a couple of thoughts and so one i think the cell the cell phone records i think is a very obvious like first point right because when they're investigating the double homicide they obviously have to scrub through paul's phone they have to scrub through maggie's phone they have to scrub through alex's phone all these phones. And so maybe a text message did come up at some point that was like, wait a minute. You know, I could see that. I could see, I could totally see that. My other thought here is, so we're talking about, um, you were talking about this pickup truck, right? 
that um potentially you know um you know may have been involved in this uh you know hit and run you know non-hit and run type of situation i would imagine that these types of you know properties these types of people we're talking about the south you know hunters whatever they probably have a pickup truck but it wasn't long after the murders that they opened the case It was kind of immediately. It was like weeks later. It feels it feels better to me anyways that they and I don't know, maybe this is just like the true crime lover in me that like it feels better to me that like they found something in the course of that investigation. You know what I mean? And so like they they're super vague, obviously, and they're in their press release about this whole situation. Um, but it seems to me like the the fact that like, oh, like the investigative report just like happens to come back across our desk that like, oh, and like I just happened to read through 110 pages of it. Like like that's when we decided that there was like something weird going on here like six years later. I don't buy that. But um yeah, I it feels better to me like like, like something else, like the cell phone, the truck, something, a gun, maybe. It all makes you wonder. So wonder. Uh, so as we said, we, you know, we still don't know what information they gathered that led them to reopen the case, but significant. Now, I mean, that to me screams that there's something there, something in this report, in this investigation that says, you know, for six years, you know, maybe was gone, missing, uncovered, but now they finally found it, or at the very least looked at it from a different angle and decided that they need to take another look at the tragic death of Stephen Smith. I always think about his mom at this point. I mean, Mm -hmm. she has been relentless and rightfully so. I mean, never, ever, ever underestimate the power of a mother because- Moms are the strongest people in the world. I yeah. I will always say that. I mean, she had done all the interviews. She had continued saying, like, this isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't right. And then finally, you know, they reopened this case. And I can just only imagine, like, what that what she was feeling when she found out that news. I mean, it's like, finally... Someone is finally, like, listening to her. Yeah, yeah, and I think that is such an important point, and that's what, like, gets me, is, like, you know, the, like you said, the power of a mom, the power of, you know, you know, just for six years just wandering around aimlessly while everyone else was looking elsewhere, mm-hmm. right? And, like, ever and... Man, I just can't imagine. I really can't imagine, you know, how, how what she was thinking, what she was feeling. Mm-hmm. When everyone all of a sudden was talking about this and you're just like, yeah, like, I freaking told you so. I told you so. <laughs> I told you, you know? that in 2016. <laughs> like, yeah, you know? right. But uh, like heartbreaking. It's it's finally happening, though, for her. Yeah, and I'm, I'm happy about that. Like, you know, Michelle, I think at this point, I feel like I have to say this um, because I think we should take another look. At where Stephen died, right? We talked about that at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Let's bring it back now, shall we? So I'm sending you a map now. Let's look. At, let's take a look at what we're talking about here. Okay. So this is where Stephen's body was found, mm-hmm. right? This is where Stephen's car was found. Mm-hmm. Kind of a bizarre location, you know, but again, three miles away, like down a different road. And then you look 10 minutes away. And what's here, Michelle? Oh my gosh, that's Moselle. That is Moselle, the Murdoch family property where Paul and Maggie were killed. Again, we're talking 10 minutes away. 
right? I mean, and like not only ten minutes away, but like you know, down two like two roads away yeah. from from where Stephen's car was found, and also you know there is a like you know like you go down this road, like there's a very clear route here. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, and it makes you wonder where was Stephen coming from. And yeah. where was he going? Like, well, and such a good point too, right? Because, like, again, like, if if the implication here is that Butts Buster had some sort of sexual relationship with Stephen, right? You know, his car was found here, which was facing, you know, down, like, uh, like toward where he was found, and then all of a sudden his body was found over here. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like, there's a very clear route. Like that, 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 that's where he, he was coming from, hypothetically speaking. Mm-hmm. So I just, I don't know. I don't know for sure if that's where he was coming from. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but it totally could have been a coincidence, but it also totally could not have been. Yeah, right, right. And like, keep in mind, they're neighbors who went to school together, all this stuff, sure. So, like, I'm imagining they probably do live pretty close to each other, but like, 10 minutes away like, yeah look like these are simply just the facts there are multiple people who are working with the murdochs and working with the smith family at this point who say no one is associated with the murdoch family had anything to do with this as far as they're concerned but i think that we've seen just how far alec randy and paul are willing to go to preserve the family name gloria satterfield whose body is being exhumed this year, and whose children still have not gotten the justice from the financial crimes Alec admitted to during his murder trial. Mallory Beach, whose family says the Murdochs rushed to them, feeding them information as facts that everyone else involved in this boat wreck said were lies, flat-out lies. The botched murder-suicide, which Alec admitted himself to being completely staged. And now Sled has made the an unmistakable attempt at tying Stephen's death to the Murdoch family name somehow. They did that themselves, right? After Alec was convicted, the Smith family announced plans to exhume Stephen's body. But Sled said they didn't even need that to happen to reveal the truth. After eight years of Sandy and good, solid investigators screaming, screaming at the top of their lungs that Stephen was murdered. They know it for sure. Sled said that they agreed. They officially said that his death was not a vehicular manslaughter. It was a homicide, and they were investigating it that way. The agency said it was waiting to make the official announcement until after Alex's trial for the murder of his wife Maggie and son Paul. Quote, out of concern, some witnesses would not be as forthcoming under the Murdoch sphere of influence, end quote. So I think that's a really good point. Um, a lot of times with, especially when cases have grown cold, um, people are very afraid to talk or to come forward and share information because of what could happen to them, other people that might yeah. be involved, you know, their mm-hmm. safety could be in jeopardy. And so as time goes on, things happen. Sometimes people pass away. Sometimes people get put in prison, you know, but time then gives people with information the safety that they feel that they need, the protection to share what they know. And it's unfortunate but it's it's the truth in some situations. Yeah. So 
Um, I love the fact that they were able to announce this. And I think also, you know, uh, Stephen's mom raised, like, through a GoFundMe. Like, wasn't it almost like a million dollars to exhume his body? It was like $100,000. Oh, okay. I mean, a monstrous amount of money. It it was a lot. And And by the way, $100,000 of a $15,000 goal. Like, holy crap. Wow. I mean, I think that really shows just the support that she has and how much this case has, like, touched so many people around the world. I mean, it's captivated so many people. And it sounds like something out of a movie, but unfortunately, this is reality for so many families in this community. Yeah, Yeah, and, you know, I think, and again, when I say, like, unmistakable, you know, um, association here, like, I mean, like, why would they have not, you um, you know, just come out with it, you know, right off the bat, you know, if, if for whatever, you know, they took a look at this report again, like, sure, and said, oh, there's something weird here, but, like, it had nothing to do with the Murdochs, right? Like, why would they wait until now? They, like, this is an, this is such an obvious association here, at the very least with, if it's not with the Murdoch name, with the people who knew the Murdochs, you know what I mean? The people with ties to the Murdochs, you know, I think that this is, like, there's such, and and it just, it it, it breaks my heart, kind of what you were talking about before, Michelle, about, you know, about how, how for years, you know, almost eight years now, Sandy has been, like I said, screaming at the top of her lungs, this Mm -hmm. is what happened, this is what happened, and no one was listening to her. Mm -hmm. No one was listening to her. And finally, you know, someone, someone said, yeah, you know what, you, you have a really good point. You, you bring, you, and I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't bring away the pain. And it's like, you know, this could have been solved so long ago. And, you know, Sandy could have mourned by now and been Mm -hmm. okay, you know, and, and come to terms with it. But, but eight years later, she is probably reliving this over and over and over Mm -hmm. again. It's, it's devastating. I mean, I can't imagine being her, you know, being, just being dragged through and just, you know, and from the beginning of this investigation, just, it just didn't feel right at all. Like you were looking in the totally wrong direction. And God knows why. God Mm -hmm. knows why that was happening. Well, and, and her, taking the the role of investigator herself you know Mm. going back and talking to people sometimes it's a lot harder for someone to look a mom in the eyes and like yeah lie Mm. or not you know it's just it's something about being face to face with a mother who has experienced tragedy and Mm. Sometimes people feel that and they, they want to be able to share, but it, that's completely different than going to an investigator and saying, I know this and I'm willing to, to go right. and sit on a witness stand in court and share it in front of the public. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those are two completely different things. But now it's coming. I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. Now it's it's coming. And it's so like relieving you know mm-hmm. knowing that like even though like we all are seeing this and you know and seeing that this is like not right that this is like something's wrong here something's like a miss like we need to be t- looking at this again mm-hmm. that someone's someone's doing that like someone's looking at this and saying you know destroying decades of dynastic control of this area and saying that, you know, no, 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 no. Like there's something wrong here and we need to be, there's an injustice happening and we need to be doing something about it. Yeah. You, you definitely were going exactly like where I'm feeling like, you know, I think people truly love to see justice. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I also think 
people love seeing an underdog win. Not that, you know, I'm not trying to make like a basketball metaphor or or sports metaphor or anything like that. But here you have like just a, a regular family, just living life you know, enjoying life for what it is. And then trying to get by. Exactly. And then something happens and there, you know, this other family's involved that has all this power and all this means and all this money. And, you know, you're kind of seeing the tide turn in, Mm. in this situation in multiple ways. Yeah. It's so powerful. Right. I mean, the tide turning, (laughs) oh man, that like gave me chills a little bit. You saying that, you know, I, I think that's, that is, that is such an important way to look at that because the tide has gone in their favor for so long. Right. I mean, for so long, they were able to get away with these horrible, monstrous, you know, situations, you know, and let's like leave all like the death investigations aside uh, for a second. Um, and, you know, simply talk about what we do know, which is the fact that he was, you know, this family, the Murdoch family, was, you know, robbing so many people of, and they, and he admitted to it, of millions of dollars. And so that, that makes me mad in and of itself. But the point being is that, you know, someone like that who is able to get away with something like that for so long is suddenly on the other side of the coin in the handcuffs, right? In, you know, you know, locked away for good um and you know maybe the underdog like you said is finally going to be able to you know to at the very least be heard that something was not right here absolutely that's that's always my favorite story so this is what we do know right now as we sit here at the end of march recording this episode right now but this case has been developing at lightning speed so It is totally safe to say that we will be providing an update episode on Stephen's murder very soon, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, they are still trying to solve who killed him. So if you know anything about Stephen Smith's death, call SLED at 803-737-9000 or the Crime Stoppers of the Low Country at 843-554-1111. And you can also use the link that we will put on our website and in our show notes. I think at the center of this, you have to remember Stephen Smith, the 19-year-old blonde hair. I mean... You know, going to school to be a nurse, it takes a special person to be a nurse. I mean, you, you, that says a lot about his spirit, I -hmm. think. And I think that says a lot about his character. And I just think about his family here. You know, we've, we've talked about this. His sister, you know, they were living together. Her life completely changed. And then just his mom, who has been so relentless in all of this. And, you know, going from just always in the ear of investigators calling and, and asking and, and going to media and doing all of these things. I mean, that really is bringing up that trauma for her over and over yeah. and over again. Mm-hmm. But again, a mama bear spirit, they're not going to stop. They're not going to mm-hmm. stop. So um, and just the fact that she raised all of this money to exhume his body that turned out it's it's not needed. Um, but you don't see this often. She could have no. ended up living out her life to never getting answers in her son's death. And now um, there are some steps that are moving forward that she just might get those answers. And I'm hopeful. Yeah. I'm very hopeful. And yeah, it, it, it gets me you know, emotional every time I think about it, right? Because it's 
It's not like you said, it's not, you know, they don't exhume bodies for mm-hmm. anything, right? I mean, they I mean, it it takes a very specific investigation to be able to do this because they need to know without a doubt. And there's like a whole legal process you have to go through in order to get this. You can't the mother can't just say, Oh yeah, let's exhume the body and like that's what they're gonna do. Exactly. A judge has to grant it and there there yeah. has to be certain th- things proven as to why this is needed. They just right. don't dig up bodies just for the heck of it. Yeah, right. So that, I think, and also the fact, like, not for nothing, but they're also doing that for Gloria Satterfield, right? Mm-hmm. Like, that is, like, hello. Like, I, I I mean, the fact that, like, two different people who have ties to this family, like, they're taking another look at this so much so that they're willing to dig up their bodies to take another look at it. it I, I think if things had gone slightly different, I don't know exactly what those things are, but if things had gone slightly different there was a big chance that gloria and steven's deaths would have never been brought up again yeah and oh yeah that's such a good point i think uh, you know man that's such a good point i mean frankly if you know if alec had never killed paul and maggie right i mean yeah. where would we be right now I mean, man, that's such a good point. That's a really good point. Not only the matter of like, you know, that all the the mistakes and the lies that he that he told um, that, you know, pointed right to him. Like, what if they never find out who killed Paul and Maggie? Mm-hmm. Man, oh, man, I don't even want to think about that. That goes me down. That brings me down a totally different rabbit hole. Um, but, you know, before we even get there, because I think we could probably make all of the podcast I know. about that. <laughs> so, you know, let me just let me just cut it off right there and say that that is all we have for you this week. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on this week and sh- and talking about this case with us. It, it You bring so much to the table and I'm so glad you're able to do this. Oh, I am thrilled that you asked me to be a part of this and I'm so interested because so many people have so many different theories. So yeah. if anyone listening has like their own theory as to like what's going on, like comment, like I, oh, I want right to read them. I want to know, you know, cause I'm yeah. always open to hearing different theories, you know, comment on, you know, our, on our Instagram posts, on our Facebook posts, you know, talking about like, share with us what you think actually happened to these cases. You know, I think back to like Sherry Orofino, who was episode seven. And I'm like, that one was such a crazy episode too. Like, tell me what you think about that. And so there's so much, to t- there's so much to talk about um, for all these cases. And so don't feel shy, like write it in email us message us definitely thank you so much liam well thank you again so much for coming on michelle and thank you all so much for listening we are going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a few theories too and if you are enjoying this podcast and you're just wondering how you can tell anyone and everyone about it the best way to help people find this podcast is by leaving us a five-star review and a rating wherever you are listening right now so make sure you follow us on on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we will see you next week for another episode of Crime Over Wine. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.